I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, we'll dive into a new landmark study from the Harvard Kennedy School. The study suggests that Black women may have worse career outcomes when their teams have a greater share of white colleagues. And one reason this study is so important is because most research on inequality in the workplace looks at hiring practices and pre-hiring practices, or what we often refer to as the pipeline. But this study looks at what happens post-hire and how the racial makeup of a team changes the career trajectory of people on that team, specifically Black women. Dr. Elizabeth Linos joins me to discuss the study that she and her co-authors published this past November. Dr. Linos is an Associate Professor for Public Policy and Management and Faculty Director of the People Lab at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. In our conversation, Professor Linos will walk us through this data, including how the racial makeup of a team affects things like promotions, performance evaluations, and attrition rates for Black women. Dr. Elizabeth Linos, welcome to The Electorate. Thank you for having me. So there's been a lot of research focused on trying to understand why racial inequalities persist in the workplace. And you highlight fairly early on in this paper that a lot of the, the research previously has been focused on the pipeline, right? Those pre-hire practices, hiring, recruiting, the interview process. But this research specifically looks at what happens to new hires later in their careers. And I want to point out that you're specifically looking at the professional outcomes for Black women, right? Um, that's what you're focused on. And you look at retention rates, promotional practices, engagement, What gave you the insight? What clued you in that there were problems beyond the pipeline? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, Well, first, I do want to highlight that uh, this research is important across the employee life cycle. So I think it is really important to continue to study um, what might need to change in pre-hire characteristics, uh, in selection processes, and making sure the right people are kind of um, getting to final stages and application processes. And all that research is ongoing. But what we find in our research is that even within a firm or within an organization, uh, even if you see more diversity in kind of junior hires or early stage employees, there seems to be uh, fewer and fewer employees of color and especially black women in managerial positions and then more senior positions. So to me, that's a first um, signal that there might be things that need to happen in the firm and in the workplace. More broadly, if we care a lot about diversity in organizations as a whole, by only exclusively focusing on recruitment, we might be missing opportunities to improve workplaces. We're bringing in people into workplaces that haven't changed or um, are still creating or uh, furthering existing inequities. And so it's almost a vicious cycle where we're recruiting people who might look different than previous employees, but if they're leaving at higher rates or if they're not getting promoted at higher rates, it's it's a vicious cycle that's never going to lead to sustained diversity in these high-wage workforces. You know, I guess in a sense, it is understandable that, you know, people have overlooked these, you know, pre-hire or the post-hire practices, because you would assume that if a company is investing a lot of resources and a lot of time and thinking into improving the pipelines, you know, getting rid of those biases and interviewing, that you'd find those same practices within the company culture, right? But that's not what's happening. I mean, can we explain that disconnect? Yeah, I think you're right. It's just a very different lens, right? So there's a lot of things that can happen in the broader labor market. Uh, A lot of people are studying um, education inequities, Um, but what my research highlights, and I think this study is is a good example of that, is that there's a lot that needs to change within a workplace as well. And so providing that same level of rigor 
um, and focus on the day-to-day dynamics or day-to-day interactions that people have at work could have these really large effects on things like recruitment, retention, and promotion. Because what happens in a workplace doesn't just stay in a workplace. It also is going to affect who wants to join a firm in the future as well. Um, so it's just really providing that simple focus that we have on on pre-hire characteristics to what needs to change in a workplace, in the day-to-day experience of going to work for, for employees. So can you tell me a bit about the field site, the company that you used for research, right? The size of the company, the racial and the gender makeup, and, and how you conducted the research. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a firm um, that looks quite similar to a lot of um, high-wage elite professional services firms. So it's one of the many professional services firms that we have in the U.S. and and, and globally. And like many of these firms, the um, demographic makeup of the firm does not necessarily represent the the demographics of the U.S. So we have about 5% uh, Black employees, about 5% Hispanic employees, uh, a slightly larger percentage of Asian employees, and the predominant um, demographic group are, are white employees, and in particular, white men. And what's important is that that uh, becomes wider and wider as you move up in the ladder. So senior leaders in this firm, like many firms of this kind, are predominantly white and male, uh, even if there has been some progress on bringing in new recruits that are, that are slightly more diverse. So let's dig into the data a bit, right? And I want to preface this by saying that, you know, as a Black woman, <laughs> I've worked in companies with a similar makeup and have encountered, you know, directly these racial and gender inequality issues, right? These biases. And so when I look at this, this data, I was really excited because it was affirming, right? Affirming of my own experiences, but it was also shocking in how affirming it was, right? And I think that's both a good and a bad thing, right? So when you have these experiences anecdotally, there's very little you can do with that, right? But when you have data to back it up, there's still very little I can do with that. <laughs> but it makes me feel better, right? Um, well, let's start with the racial turnover gap, right? So Black employees are 6.7 percentage points more likely to exit within the first two years than their white counterparts. So tell me a little bit about that data. And also, can you tell me how you're defining exit? What categories of attrition? Yeah, this is a great question. And if I may, Jen, one thing that I do want to highlight is exactly what you said about your experience. You know, sometimes we think about what is, you know, what's the value in in quantifying or measuring something that many people have experienced in their day-to-day work. Um, And my sense is that even just giving a a number or magnitude to the size of the problem helps ground a conversation on what needs to happen next. But for many people, especially Black women, these results may not be surprising given their lived experience. But I still think it's helpful to put numbers behind the, that that experience that a lot of people have had. So to get to your actual question on 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 turnover, um, so we're defining turnover very broadly, and this is important. So we're just looking at whether or not a new hire is still working at the firm two years later. The two-year mark is a very important, um, critical mark for a lot of these professional services firms, because um, after two years, you're really going up for promotion to the next level. There's a little bit of an upper out culture. So if you're not getting promoted at the two-year mark, that's probably a negative signal. But what's important to note is that we can't tell in our data whether it's a good or bad thing for an individual employee. So we're not going to take a stance in our research on whether or not it's bad for any specific 
you know, black woman or employee to leave this specific firm. But what we see is these large racial differentials and who who exits at the two-year mark. And to me, that's an important thing for, for a firm uh, of this side to really question, like, what is it about the firm that makes the experience so different for Black employees and white employees? And as you know, we see a turnover gap between Black employees and white employees. That's 6.7 percentage points. It's about 30% more turnover for, for Black employees. And what we note is an even larger gap between Black women and white women. So the gap between Black women and white women is nine percentage points. That comes out to more than 50% of a gap in turnover between Black women and white women. So to us, that was a very surprisingly large gap, even though there is a huge literature that suggests that the experience might look different, just the the size of the gap uh, was surprising. So what does that mean, right, in in, in practical terms? So that means that you could say that it's more than just a gender issue, right? There's a gender and racial component, right? Is that what that means? Absolutely. So one thing that um, was really important to us for this paper is to really take an intersectional lens to looking at this question of diversity. So there's a lot of research that looks at gender dynamics within these firms or racial dynamics within these firms. And what our study shows is that the intersection of race and gender uh, might lead to very different experiences. So white women in this firm are... Uh, faring better both on turnover and on promotion than Black women. And so if we were to just look at this from a gender perspective, we would be obfuscating a differential experience for Black women. Same thing if we just looked at race. If we just looked at race, we wouldn't really be able to capture the the double disadvantage that Black women often face in workplaces because of their race and their gender. Right, because I think what you found is that Black men had better outcomes than Black women, and other women of color also had better outcomes than Black women. Is that true? So what we focus on is is kind of a, uh, one part of the experience. The main part of, of the paper, beyond just documenting these large gaps in turnover and promotion, is to really understand how having more uh, white colleagues early on in your career, the in your first few months on the job, might have differential impacts for, for different types of employees. And you're absolutely right. What we find is a particular experience for Black women that looks different um, than for other race and gender groups. So specifically, if you have more white colleagues early in your career in those first few months, uh, the likelihood that you're going to turn over goes up for Black women specifically, and the likelihood of getting promoted um, goes down for Black women specifically. Tell me what the picture looks like for promotions in relation to Black women. Yeah, we see a very similar picture. So um, in general, we see that Black employees are less likely to get promoted on time, and we define on time as getting promoted uh, around that two-year mark, so within uh, within two and a half years. Um, specifically, Black employees are 18.7 percentage points, so that's about 26% less likely uh, to be promoted on time than their white counterparts. And again, we see the same pattern where the more white colleagues you have early on in your career, uh, the less likely it is that you get promoted subsequently at the two-year mark if you are a Black woman. Right, right. And, and then as your career goes on, there are less opportunities for promotion because probably the, the assumption internally is that there's something with this employee that, that you know, warrants they're not being promoted, presumably. Yeah, so we don't look at that um, specifically, but you're absolutely right. The, the sense that we got both from our qualitative work and from the data itself is that the two-year mark or that first promotion is really critical for long-term career outcomes. And in general, in this firm, as in many firms of this kind, if you're labeled as a low performer, not only are you more likely to not get promoted, you're also more likely to turn over, you know, shortly thereafter. Yeah. So let's talk about performance reviews. So what did you, what did you find there? 
So one thing that we were trying to figure out um, in this work is how does uh, how can we explain these large turnover uh, and promotion gaps that we see? And one thing that we do find is that even though your first teams are what we call uh, as good as random. So there's uh, a similar pattern or similar distribution of who has whiter colleagues or less white colleagues in their in their first teams. The black women who just because of chance had more white colleagues in their first few months end up being more likely to be labeled as low performers later on subsequently. So that starts to point to a potential dynamic that's happening that we can't capture in the quantitative data, but that uh, we hear about it in qualitative research and interviews that we do uh, and speaks to a whole range of research about how those first experiences at work or those first interactions with colleagues at work can have long-term consequences on who gets labeled a low performer later on and ultimately uh, even just the work that you do later on subsequently in terms of the uh, allocation of your time, what you uh, end up working on, who your network might be as you uh, continue in a firm and ultimately uh, turnover and promotion. You know, that piece of data that you just mentioned, I, which is basically kind of the, the root of this research, was kind of a showstopper for me. So essentially, just to put it plainly, and you can correct me if I'm restating this wrong, but the more <laughs> white coworkers you have, if you're a Black woman, the worst outcomes you'll have across the board, just generally, right? You'll have, you know, worse performance reviews. You, you, you may leave the company earlier than your, your counterparts. Is that is that too oversimplified? So let me restate what you said, Jen. Um, so one thing is, you know, we, we're limited in what we can say because we can only talk about the outcomes that we can see in the administrative data. So we don't have um, kind of granular data about all sorts of other outcomes that might be important. But with the data that we can see, you're right that having more white coworkers early in your career seems to have these um, negative impacts on Black women. One thing I do want to um, emphasize is that we don't know for any individual woman whether or not turnover is a bad or good thing. You can imagine a world where uh, you know, if the dynamics at work are not good, it's a positive to to exit that firm. That's not what we're studying here. But from an organizational perspective, given how costly turnover is for a firm and how large those gaps are and how early uh, in one's career we see this turnover, yes, that is what we find, that kind of dynamics that happen early on with more white colleagues have these subsequent negative effects for Black women. Some people might say when hearing this data that, well, you know, perhaps these people who have left the company or who weren't getting promotions and the people who were brought in are just better performers, right? You know, how can you extrapolate that? Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it is something we hear. Um, and I think uh, Black women face uh, um, many narratives uh, around, around performance. Um, but I actually think our study points to a very different finding. So the fact that there are low performers and high performers in the workplace uh, is going to be true regardless of race and gender, but your performance shouldn't depend on how many white colleagues you have early on in your career. So if it were true that this was just um, a fixed characteristic of the employee, right? It was just that the, the Black women, for example, who were hired were just low performers in general, we wouldn't see the effects that we see. So what we're seeing here is something that says, look, it's not about some fundamental fixed level of performance for specific groups of employees, but rather something about the, the workplace dynamics early on that increases the likelihood that they're going to be labeled as low performers. So what I kind of find important in this, in this study is to really emphasize that low performance and who's labeled as a low performer changes not based on the characteristics of the employee, but based on who their coworkers are early in their career. 
So I want to talk about another thing that you measured, which was engagement and participation, which seems like a harder thing to measure. How did you measure that and what were the outcomes there? Yeah, um, you're right that it's a harder thing to measure. And there are other kind of research techniques and research methodologies that really try to dig into the day-to-day you know, ways in which people participate in a meeting or show up at work. And we aren't able to capture that. What we are able to capture are a couple of things. One, um, how people score their engagement on a broader kind of engagement type survey. So a lot of firms have uh, surveys or employee surveys where they ask about engagement. We don't see any differences there between uh, employees who had wider colleagues or not. Another measure of engagement that we use is essentially how you spend your time in this firm. So in this firm, as in many firms of its kind, you are allocating your time to either client-facing billable work or internal work or training. And what we find is that over time, Black women who had wider teams to begin with end up um, having fewer hours on billable work and more hours allocated to trading. Now, again, I do want to emphasize that this isn't the general pattern. This is if you have a wider team initially, subsequently later over the next two years, we see less billable hours. So again, this is a really clear indication that there's something happening early on in one's workplace that is affecting how Black women end up billing time. And it could have many different explanations that uh, that we can't see in our data. Right. So I'm just trying to, to understand that practically. So does that mean when you say like less engagement and less billable hours, do you mean like they're engaged in fewer high profile projects or fewer meetings or fewer opportunities for networking? Or what does that mean practically? Absolutely. So we don't see that they're assigned to fewer projects and they're not assigned to, you know, fewer high profile projects. That could have been one of the explanations for for the patterns that we see. Uh, We just see that they're reporting fewer client facing hours compared to employees who had fewer white colleagues early on in their career. That ends up mattering in these types of firms because it's a it's a sign of success to bill more hours to to have higher billable hours in your in your reports. But what we can't see in our data is you know is this someone who is doing the same amount of work but billing fewer hours? There's some research that suggests that that's the case, or is it someone who because they haven't had the same opportunities or the same uh, network or the same conditions to be able to bill more hours end up billing fewer hours? And we see both in our qualitative research. So we see some employees saying, you know, uh, I was made to feel like I should be doing this faster. And so I, I was billing fewer hours because I thought I shouldn't be billing as many hours as it actually took me. It should have been, I should have been faster at, you know, doing a specific task. We also hear from other interviewees, you know, I tried to speak up in meetings and my ideas kept getting ignored. So over time, I said, there's no point in me speaking up in meetings because no one's even listening. So both of those things are coming out in qualitative research. And there's a, a large evidence base for, for potential ways in which initial dynamics could affect future engagement and participation. But all we can see is actually just the final, you know, um, hours in the administrative data. It sounds like the employees that you talked to, the Black women specifically, had a sense of what was happening to them. Did you get that feeling? Yeah, we were very fortunate to speak to employees from all races and genders, and there were some patterns that were um, true across the board. So a level of anxiety about what factors are going to play a role in promotion, or what does it mean to, to look good on the job? And then beyond that, we certainly heard from Black women an additional set of 
work or stressors that they had to manage to be able to be successful in this firm. And I do want to emphasize, I would expect the patterns to look very different in other uh, firms of this kind that are high wage elite firms that are dominated by white men. I don't think it's specific or unique to this firm. Um, but we, we heard about the additional workload required to manage identities in a meeting or to feel like networks that were available to some employees might not have been available to all employees. And in a sense that initial uh, dynamics between managers and employees might look different for, for Black women than for other groups. Yeah, and I think you mentioned this earlier, but I think another showstopper for me in this data was the fact that white men specifically had the greatest impact on the trajectory of a Black woman's career, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, our first finding is we see having more white co-workers ends up having these effects on turnover and promotion of, of uh, Black women in particular. But we take that same intersectional lens to look at which white co-workers make the biggest difference. And exactly as you note, we see that white men in particular uh, so having more white male colleagues early in your career has a larger impact on Black women, especially when it comes to promotion and the effects on promotion. Now, there's a lot of data to parse through here. And of course, I'll post a link to the study in the show notes, but I really want to invite people to take a look at the study, right, and go through the data. There's a lot more detail there than we've been able to really cover in this conversation. And again, I hope people will find something affirming in this data. Um, you know, Elizabeth, what's one takeaway, a broader takeaway that we should consider when we're looking through this data? This research really points to one causal pathway that might explain inequities at work. Um, the staffing decisions at this firm look very similar to staffing decisions at all sorts of firms. And what we find is that a seemingly neutral decision on, you know, who works with whom can have these disproportionate effects or differential effects for different employees. So to me, it just points to uh, the need for more research on how seemingly neutral decisions about how you get on your next project or who gets staffed with whom can have these effects. Uh, I'd love to see more research about how, you know, firms that depend on networks for projects and for promotions end up disadvantaging some groups over others. Right. That seems like a really hard problem to solve if we're just specifically looking at or only looking at numbers. Right. But because if you just think about the population, Black women will always be outnumbered in firms like this. Right. Um, so how do you even get at solving an issue or coming up with solutions for something like this? It's a great question. And a lot of the research that we're doing coming out of this finding and the study is really getting to the idea of, okay, what happens next? Or, or um, how do we start looking for solutions? My sense is that this research points to an area where we have limited evidence on what works. So how do we think about changing the behavior of white coworkers and white men in particular in firms such that these dynamics don't end up becoming the norm across all firms? We have a lot of research um, and a lot of efforts that try to adjust the behavior of Black women, whether it's through mentorship programs or, or training programs or support programs. But we don't have as many initiatives and interventions that are really tackling the behavior of, of white employees and white men. And so I'm excited to see more research that really focuses on interventions that tries to change the behavior of the dominant group in these firms. And I think we can make a lot of progress if we at least acknowledge that that's part of the challenge we're hoping to solve. Right. Um, good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I know that there are lots of programs, you know, um, 
you know, for black women um, and minority groups, you know, telling how to, you know, integrate and succeed in these environments, but fewer on the people who actually have the power to kind of shape the culture. So, you know, again, (laughs) good luck. I mean, it's honestly, as, as a, as a researcher, it's, it's our job, right. As, as academics to, to document the challenges, but also point to potential causal pathways for improvement. Um, And I think this research really points to an area that was understudied. Uh, We're not just looking at average effects for uh, white employees versus non-white employees. We're not obfuscating the differences between race and gender groups that are all employees of color. I think that level of targeting is really critical and recognizing the importance of white coworkers in determining outcomes or career outcomes for black women is a step in the right direction, but we have a lot of work to do before we come to solutions. And in your opinion, do you think all of the research that and the work that's been done around improving the pipeline, has that actually been fruitful? That's, that's a big question, Jen. Uh, I, think, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I think one thing that we have um, unearthed through that research is that seemingly small changes in how we do selection or how we think about interviews um, can really make a difference. And to me, that's really important. So it's the same flavor of research to say, actually, the environment in which you're choosing applicants could really affect who you choose or the way you read a CV could really change who you select even by selecting criteria that aren't relevant for the job. And so there's been a big push to rethink how we do recruitment and selection with those differences in mind. That has, I think, borne fruit, even though, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done on recruitment and selection. And we do need to do the same thing uh, at each stage in the process. So onboarding new hires, how we think about who gets tapped for promotion and who is promoted all the way through kind of senior levels of management. Yeah, when I think about when I first entered my career in in technology, about the way that interviews and the pipeline was done then versus how it is now, you know, I can see a lot of changes, right? They've done, you know, a lot of tech firms use a lot of kind of blind interview processes, right? Where you can't necessarily determine at the very beginning the gender or race or background of the interviewee. And so you can see some improvements there. Um, But again, you know, thinking about myself, I think one of the, the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation is because of my own experiences. And I'm hoping that when I left, you know, the, the, that industry, when I left corporate America, um, you know, I had conversations with a lot of other Black women and, you know, mentees talking about their experiences, and they had some of the same experiences that I had. And I wish I had the data to help them feel less lonely and to let them know that this isn't just you. There's data out there to support these experiences. And I think that's why this is so important. And it was really, you know, good for me to have this conversation with you. I, I appreciate that. And 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 I'm hoping that's what this can do, really document the patterns here, that it's not an individual level um, challenge. It's also, you know, if someone's labeled a low performer, there are many things that go into that, including things that are out of their control and have nothing to do with their actual underlying ability to perform. And so by unearthing this and documenting it in a very rigorous way, I'm hoping to just clarify or validate the experiences that people might already be um, having on the job. Well, Professor Linos, Elizabeth Linos, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks so much for having me. 